Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these hymns that we have sung that have been encouraging us to pour our, our souls to you in song and worship and praise. Uh, Lord, you are great, and because you are great, you are greatly to be praised. Lord, teach us how to really praise you as we ought to praise you with all of our soul. Lord, um, help us to bless you with our soul, uh, with all that is within us, to bless your holy name because you are worthy of that kind of worship, Lord. Uh, forgive us when we are apathetic and our, our hearts and our minds don't, don't match the words that we are saying, Lord. Help us to really center our hearts and minds on you, to really meditate on who you are so that our hearts and minds and souls would be lifted up to sing to you the praises that you are worthy of, of being sung to, Lord. We pray that um, through your word this morning you would enlarge our understanding and our love for you. May your spirit teach us from your word. May he make us uh, more faithful worshipers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're looking at verses 13 through 19 this morning. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 through 19. When we gather on the Lord's day like we are today, what should our goals be? When we come together, what should we be desiring and hoping to accomplish by our coming together. Probably some of us show up with no goals at all. This is just our routine. We go to church on Sunday. That's just the way it is. The goal is just to get here and get it over with so that we can go on with our lives. Others of us may have goals, but those goals are self-centered. I'm here because I want to be made to feel good. I want to be served by others. I want to get out of the house and to have my needs met. I want people to ask how I'm doing, to ask how they ha can help me, how they can pray for me, how they can make me feel like I belong to something special and make me feel that I am something special. And if I don't get that on a Sunday morning, then it was a waste of time. In the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see that we ought to have very different goals when we gather together on the Lord's day. Our goals, instead of being self-focused, should be others-focused. Obviously, at the top of our goal list should be the goal of bringing glory to God and of loving and worshiping God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what does that look like? What does it look like to love God with all that we are and to worship him with all that we are. Oftentimes it looks like loving our neighbor as ourself, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ just as Christ has loved us. And how has he loved us? Sacrificially laying down his life for us. Our goal when we show up here on a Sunday should be to serve one another, to use the gifts that God has given us to build up others in their faith in Christ. Our goal should be to help others love Jesus Christ and love their neighbor more rather than trying to make others love me more. And Paul is going to help us set these new goals for ourselves in verses 13 through 19. So let me read 
that passage for us in chapter 14, starting in verse 13. In verse 12, Paul commanded, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 13, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. First, we're going to look at verse 13. And in this first verse of this passage, we're going to see that one of our goals that we should set for our lives as Christians is that we should be those who seek God to seek his face, to provide us the giftedness we need to edify one another. We should ask God for the giftedness needed to edify the church. Just to bring us back up to speed as to where we are in this chapter, in verses 1 through 5, Paul had asserted that the gift of prophecy was greater than the gift of tongues. Why? Because the gift of prophecy was able to edify who? The whole church, whereas the gift of tongues was only able to edify who? The tongue speaker himself. The gift of tongues, when not translated, could only build up the one who was speaking. Then in verses 6 through 11, Paul demonstrated that uninterpreted tongues, that is, remember what the gift of tongues is, it's speaking in foreign languages that you had never learned before, doing that without interpreting it, Paul demonstrated in verses 6 through 11 that that was completely ineffective when it came to building up the church body. Just like no one can sing along to an instrument that is giving an unfamiliar melody to a song, and just like no one can have a meaningful conversation with a foreigner who's speaking a foreign language that you don't understand, so the tongue speaker's message fell on deaf ears when it was not being interpreted. In light of that, Paul commanded what he commanded in verse 12. He said, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. Now, how would that apply to the exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues? How was the tongue speaker to seek to abound for the edification of the church? Well, Paul tells them how in verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If the gift of speaking in tongues was going to result in the edification of the church, it needed to be translated or interpreted. One way that the Corinthian tongue speaker could seek to abound for the edification of the church was to ask God to grant him the ability to interpret the foreign language that he was speaking so that the whole church could understand him and be edified by the message that he was saying. Now, this brings me back to verse 4. Remember, we looked at that verse last week. And in verse 4, Paul said that 
one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And we went through, if you'll remember, three different views of what Paul meant when he said the tongue speaker edified himself. The first view we looked at was that when Paul said the tongue speaker edified himself, he was saying it in a negative sense, that the tongue speaker edified himself in a negative sense. That is, he exalted himself by showing off in the midst of the assembly as they were gathered together on the Lord's Day. But in my message, I kind of discounted that because it, that didn't seem to match the tone in which Paul has been writing in this chapter in particular. The second view we looked at was that the tongue speaker edified himself in that he understood the message that he was proclaiming in tongues. He understood what he was saying even if nobody else did. And because he understood the mysteries, the truths that he was expressing, he himself was being built up. He was still communicating with God. Uh, excuse me, I just gave you the third view. Forget what I said. I'm going to blame it on me being sick this week. All right? That's not the second view. That's the third view. So forget what I just said. The second view, the second view of the tongue speaker edifying himself was that as he spoke a language that he didn't understand, he was built up in a way that bypassed his mind. The tongue speaker was speaking in a language, a foreign language, but he did not understand what he was saying. And yet he received edification. He was somehow built up in a way that bypassed his mind. That was the second view of that verse 4. And I discounted that in last week's message because that did not seem to pair well with what Paul says about the gift of tongues in the rest of this chapter. In the rest of chapter 14, the tongue speaker's mind seems to be clearly engaged as he prays and sings and gives thanks to God. How can the tongue speaker sincerely do that if the tongue speaker does not know what he's saying? If I don't know what I'm saying, how can I be said to sincerely pray to God, sing to God, give thanks to God? Not only that, but this idea that the tongue speaker uh, can edify himself in a way that bypasses his mind seems to contradict the principle that Paul establishes in this whole chapter. And the principle is this, that in order for me to be edified, I need to understand what the message is. Otherwise, I cannot be edified. How can the tongue speaker be built up by something that he does not understand? And it also seemed to contradict the Apostle John's command to test the spirits by, by critically examining what is taught. You cannot examine what you don't understand. So I discounted that second view that the tongue speaker didn't understand what he was saying and yet he was still edified somehow. The third view is the one I mentioned out of place a little earlier. The third view is that the tongue speaker edifies himself because he does understand what he's saying. Though he was speaking in a foreign language to the congregation, he, even though he had never learned that language before, he could understand what he was uttering. That's the view that I currently hold because it seems to fit the context of this chapter and to fit the context of the rest of the Bible the best. However, I mentioned last week that verse 13 posed a big problem for that view. Verse 13 again, Paul says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray 
that he may interpret. Why would the tongue speaker need to ask God for the gift of interpretation if he already knows what he's saying, right? That seems like a fatal problem with this view. But let me suggest to you that the reason that even though the tongue speaker knows what he's saying, the reason the tongue speaker needs to ask God for the gift of interpretation is due to the nature of the gift of tongues. Like prophecy, the gift of tongues is speech that is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 just to take a closer look at this. Acts chapter 2, remember the disciples are gathered together on the day of Pentecost, and this is when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. Verse 4, speaking of the disciples, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So we see here that it is the Holy Spirit enabling them to speak what they're speaking. And what is it that they're speaking? Well, according to the testimony of the foreign Jews who had come from other nations for the feast, as they arrived and they heard these disciples speaking, what do they testify about the message being given? Verse 11, they say, We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, what is the nature of what they are saying? Yes, they're they're speaking in foreign languages that these foreign Jews can understand because it's their native languages uh, from the areas they came from. And yes, they are speaking of the mighty deeds of God, but is this a direct message from God or is this just from the, the disciples' own minds saying these things? Well, Peter seems to interpret this as direct messages from God that the Holy Spirit is enabling these disciples to speak. Why do I say that? Because Peter seems to view this tongue speaking as prophecy. Look at what he says at the beginning of his sermon in verse 16. In reference to the tongue speaking, Peter says, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter views the tongue speaking as the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's Old Testament prophecy. But notice that Joel's prophecy says nothing about people speaking in tongues. Instead, it says that the people of God will do what? prophesy. Peter seems to view as prophetic the message that the disciples were announcing in other languages. We also see this close connection between tongue speaking and prophecy over in chapter 19. Turn there briefly, Acts chapter 19 and verse 6. This is where the Apostle Paul comes across some disciples of John the Baptist and he more fully explains the gospel to them and says you need to be baptized in the name of Christ. Chapter 19, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, 
and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So again, you see that close connection between tongue speaking and prophesying. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we've already seen some indications there that the message contained in the tongue speaking was a prophetic message. Chapter 14 and verse 2, Paul said there that one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. And in Paul's usage, every time he uses that word mystery, he's referring to previously hidden truths that have now been revealed in the person of Christ by the apostles and prophets. The tongue speaker is uttering these divine mysteries, which is something a prophet does. And then in verse 5, look at verse 5. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Verse 5 implies that when interpreted, tongue speaking has the same impact as prophesying. And then look at the illustrations Paul gave in verses 7 and 8 when he compared the tongue speaker to an instrument. Verse 7, he says, Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they, that is the flute or the harp, do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? The tongue speaker is compared to an instrument giving an unfamiliar tune. Now, instruments don't usually play themselves, do they? Implied is that the Holy Spirit is the one giving the tongue speaker utterance, just as he did in Acts chapter 2. And then lastly, down in verse 21 of chapter 14, which we'll look at next week. In verse 21, the tongue speaker is compared to the foreign Assyrian conquerors of Israel who would speak to the disobedient Israelites in a language that they could not understand. And yet, who is said to speak? Look at verse 21. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, who will speak? I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. God is said to be the one speaking another language to Israel through the Assyrians as an act of judgment. So all of this comes together to indicate that the message that a tongue speaker was uttering was not just something coming out of his own head. It was a message from God. It was prophecy. Now what does that have to do with the question we started out with, which was, why did the tongue speaker, if he understood what he was saying, why did the tongue speaker need to ask God for the gift of interpretation? Well, the reason why is because it would not be enough for the tongue speaker to give, say, a 10-minute prophecy and then sum it up for everyone present in a language they could understand. A prophet, even a tongue-speaking prophet, was not at liberty to sum up God's message to God's people. Remember how God told Jeremiah to not omit a word of the message that he was delivering to his people. Jeremiah 26, verse 2, 
he says to Jeremiah, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. In order for the tongue speaker to faithfully translate the prophetic message that he had just given in a foreign language, he would need to give a word-for-word accurate translation of what he had just said in a tongue in order for the people of God to get that message that God wanted them to get. Unless you're equipped with a true photographic-type memory, that's not going to be possible apart from the divine enabling of the Holy Spirit, especially when you are uttering divine mysteries, prophecies, truths that you have never heard before. It'd be like you handing me a paper on quantum physics, having me read it in French to everybody, and then take the paper away from me and expect me to word for word say what that paper said in English to everyone. I need some kind of supernatural giftedness in order to re-give that that message to you. Not only that, but it's very difficult to faithfully translate from one language into another. There are words and expressions in one language that do not have equivalence in the language that is being translated into. That's why Bible translators take such care in their work. They do not want any part of the Word of God to be lost in translation. So they have to work very hard to find expressions and words in the target language that will accurately convey the truth being uttered in the language that needs to be interpreted. The tongue speaker, even understanding the message he gave in a tongue, he would need the gift of interpretation in order to faithfully, inerrantly, and infallibly re-deliver that message in a language that everyone could understand. So, the gift of interpretation, translating what the tongue speaker was saying, that gift was also prophetic in nature because it involved the Holy Spirit enabling a person to speak a message from God infallibly and inerrantly, something that, apart from the divine enabling of the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't be able to do. So in verse 13, Paul commands the tongue speaker, even though, in my view, the tongue speaker understands what he's saying, Paul commands the tongue speaker to ask for the gift of interpretation so that he can faithfully Recommunicate exactly the message in the common tongue, what he had said in the foreign tongue. The tongue speaker and the tongue interpreter, whether it was the same person exercising both gifts or whether it was two people exercising those gifts in tandem, they both spoke as prophets. The message in tongues interpreted was prophecy. Now, this This verse where Paul is exhorting the tongue speaker to pray to God that he may interpret what he's saying for the benefit of the people of God. What is a principle that we can draw from this verse for ourselves today? When Paul exhorts the tongue speaker to pray that God would grant him the ability to interpret, what is an application that we can draw from that for ourselves today, especially when we do not see the prophetic true gift of speaking in tongues in operation in the church? Well, it's this. When you and I realize that we are not being very effective in being a source of edification to others in the church, what should we do? 
According to verse 13, what should we do? If I find that, wow, I am just not edifying anyone in how I am currently operating in the church, what should I do? Any ideas? Pray. Pray to who? To God, the one who gives good gifts to his people for the edification of the church. He's the one who's sovereign over the distribution of his gifts, right? We saw that in chapter 12. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 4. Paul there says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So he is the one we need to go to when we find, I just don't think I am building anyone up in the Lord. I don't see how I am contributing to the well-being of my brothers and sisters in Christ. He's the one we need to humbly come to and say, Lord, you are the one who has placed me in this body of believers. Lord, I do not know how to be a help to my brothers and sisters. I only know that by your grace, I want to be a help to my brothers and sisters. So Lord, I need you to equip me to open my eyes to how I can better serve, to give me giftedness that I need in order to be able to serve your body. Lord, I'm coming to you. Please make me a blessing to this body of believers. Is that not a prayer our Heavenly Father would delight to hear from us? Is that not a prayer he would delight to answer? It's a prayer in accordance with his will, isn't it? So you and I, we should be persistent in seeking God's face for the wisdom and the gifting needed to build others up in Christ. Next, in verses 14 to 17, we need to have as a goal for ourselves this, that we would use God's gifts the right way. That we'd use it the right way, not just how we want to use it, not how we think it's best to use it. We should seek to use the gifts that God has given us in the way he intended for them to be used. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, those who hold to the view that tongue speaking is something that bypasses the mind, they see this verse as a proof for that position. They interpret this verse to mean that the tongue speaker can pray with his spirit even though his mind does not understand what he is saying. But Paul does not say that his mind does not understand what he is saying when he is praying in a tongue. Paul says that when praying in a tongue, his mind is what? Unfruitful. That is, his mind or his understanding does not bear any fruit. Now, what kind of fruit is Paul talking about? Well, we have to look at the context to determine what kind of fruit Paul is talking about. Look at verse 16. Paul says there that the fruit lacking in the, the tongue speaker is that the listener, end of verse 16, does not know what you are saying. There's no fruit being born there because the listener does not know what you are saying. Verse 17, 
You're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. That is the fruit that is lacking. Verse 19, Paul says of himself that he desires to speak five words with his mind so that he may what? Instruct others also. That is the fruit that is not borne out when he prays in, a, in an uninterpreted tongue. That's the kind of fruit that Paul's mind fails to produce when he's praying in a tongue that remains uninterpreted. When Paul is praying, he's using himself as an example to these Corinthians. When Paul is praying in a foreign language, his mind, his understanding of what he is saying is not producing any fruit in the listener because the listener cannot understand him. He says, verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, that is an uninterpreted tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. It's not bearing any fruit for the listener. Verse 15, he asks, what is the outcome then? What should I do in light of that dilemma? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. He asks, what should be done in response to the dilemma posed in verse 14 that tongue speaking produces no fruit when it's not interpreted? Well, if praying in a tongue produces no fruit in the one listening, what should the tongue speaker resolve to do? Should he just stop praying in tongues? Should he just take that gift and throw it into the trash can? No, that is not what you do with a gift that the Holy Spirit gives you, right? No, Paul says he will continue to pray in the Spirit, to pray in tongues, but he says, I will also pray with my mind. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind? Well, when Paul says, I will pray with the mind, he's already indicated what he means by that in verse 14. Remember what he said in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. There Paul showed that when he was praying in a tongue, his spirit was praying. That is, his spirit was exercising the spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gave to him. That's what he meant, meant in verse 15 when he says, I will pray with my spirit. I will still exercise the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. He's not just going to throw it into the trash and never use it again. No, he's going to keep practicing the gift, but he's simply going to make sure that he's also doing what? Praying with his mind. But what does he mean by that? When Paul says, I will also pray with my mind, what does he mean? Well, I think he defines that for us down in verse 19, because he uses a similar phrase there. In the church, I desire to speak five words with what? With my mind. With what result? So that I may instruct others also. When Paul says, I will pray with my mind, he seems to mean that he will pray in a way that communicates his mind or communicates his understanding to others. So when Paul says in verse 14, when I pray in a spirit, my, when I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, he's stating the problem with uninterpreted tongues. That because no one understands, there's no fruit being born by his understanding in the exercise of that gift. So to solve the problem, he doesn't dispense with the gift. No, instead, he makes sure he uses it the way God intended for that gift to be used in the church. He speaks in tongues, yes, 
but he also makes sure to interpret it. He will pray with his mind. That is, he will exercise the gift of interpretation so that the meaning of what he is saying can be understood by others so that it will bear fruit in the congregation. That was the answer to the problem. Not to toss the gift, but to practice it in the way God wanted it to be practiced. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only... How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? Paul here states what the consequences would be for a fellow believer in the church if the tongue speaker did not bother to interpret what he was saying. Verse 16 are the consequences of using this gift in a way contrary to the way God intended it to be used in the church. Paul says, if you bless in the Spirit only, that is, if you utter a blessing using the gift of tongues without interpreting it, he asks, if you do that, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? That is, how will the one who does not understand you say amen to your prayer? That's a good question, isn't it? Because what does amen mean? When you say amen to that, what are you saying? Yeah, so be it. I agree with that. It's a Hebrew word that strongly affirms what someone says. It means something like, so let it be. When someone else prays and you say amen at the end of their prayer, that is like you signing your name at the bottom of their prayer. You're saying, Lord, ditto what they said. That's my prayer too. If someone prays in a language that you don't understand, you cannot in good conscience say amen at the end of their prayer because you don't know what they prayed. You don't know what you'd be signing your name to. Now I know we're in the habit of filling out, filling out online forms and there's that little box at the end saying, I have read and I affirm all that was written. But none of us actually read that. We just check that box and say, yeah, I'm sure it's good. Well, we can't do that when it comes to our walk with the Lord. When someone prays in a tongue that we don't understand, we can't say amen because we can't knowingly affirm what they said because we don't know what they said. In essence, the tongue speaker, by not interpreting what he said, he transformed the church's corporate worship into a one-man worship service because nobody can chime in with what he's saying. Nobody can pray with him. Nobody can experience the, the benefit of the blessing he gave because nobody understands what he's saying. No one can join him in giving thanks to God. Is that not what Paul says in verse 17? He says, For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Now how do we apply this to us today? Well, when it comes to your place in Christ's church, what should your main concern be regarding your place in Christ's church? Should you be concerned about what others think of you? That's what the Corinthians were concerned about, practicing the gift of tongues the way they were practicing it. They just wanted to show off. Should that be our concern? Should it worry you if people are not mentioning your name very often? or if you're not getting asked to help in certain areas of ministry, or if you don't have a title before your name. No, that should not be your concern. 
What should concern you in the church is this. Are you producing fruit that is beneficial to your brothers and sisters in Christ? That should be what concerns you and me. Are you using the gift or the talent or the ministry that God has given you in the most fruitful way? Or are you just using it on yourself to make a name for yourself or to satisfy and serve yourself? Now, what happens if you come to the conclusion that, wow, I have been misusing what God has given me? I've been using it on myself. Should you just stop serving altogether? Should you just toss that gift into the garbage can? No, what should you do? That's not what Paul said to do. He said, I will exercise the gift and I will make sure I'm exercising it in a way that's helpful to others. So when you come to the conclusion that you've not been living out your gifting in the church the way God wants you to do, what should you do? Well, first you should repent, ask the Lord's forgiveness, and then come to him and ask him how you can more obediently and profitably use your gift for Christ's glory and for the good of his church. And if you don't know what your gift is, that's okay. God knows what it is. Ask him to show you how you can more profitably serve others, and he will make sure to put you in a position to use your gift in the right way. That brings us to the third goal that we should set for ourselves. We see this in verses 18 to 19. We ought to desire to apply God's gifts, not to our own needs, but to the church's needs. We should desire to apply God's gifts to the church's needs. Verse 18, what does Paul say? He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Again, this makes it clear that Paul is not poo-pooing the gift of tongues. Paul had the gift himself, and he was sincerely grateful to God for the gift that the Holy Spirit had given to him. So far from being the tongue-speaking party pooper, Paul utilized that gift more than any of them. He said, I use it more than any of you. Verse 19, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So although Paul valued the gift of tongues and he practiced it frequently, he says that in the church, in the corporate worship of God's people, he would rather speak five words with his mind That is, he would rather speak five words that can be understood by others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue that no one can understand or be benefited by. Paul had no interest in making much of himself. Sure, he could have won a crowd by speaking 10,000 words in a tongue, but all he cared about was building up the body of Christ. I'd rather just say, glorify God in everything you do, than jabber on in a language ad infinitum that nobody can understand. His sole interest was helping people in the church grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul begins verse 19 by saying, however, in the church. That implies that he used the gift of tongues outside the church, doesn't it? On what occasions did he do that? Well, we're not told. Some think that 
He used tongue speaking in his own private prayer times. And on that basis, some believe that it is appropriate for Christians to pray in uninterpreted tongues in private or to have their own private prayer language. But that seems to go against the purpose of the spiritual gifts. What is the purpose of the spiritual gifts? Chapter 12, verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. It's for the good of the body. The spiritual gifts, including the gift of speaking in tongues, are not for private and personal use. They are given for the building up of the church. Now certainly the use of the gifts is going to result in self-edification. Like me preaching, I'm not only preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. So I am built up by the exercise of, of this ministry. But that is not the primary purpose for the spiritual gifts. They are given for the building up of the whole body. A spiritual gift that is only used on self is a gift that is largely gone to waste. So it's more likely that when Paul implies that he spoke the gift of tongues frequently outside of the church, it's more likely that he used this gift frequently during his extensive missionary endeavors. Paul spent long months away from home amongst foreign peoples. No doubt he found many opportunities to use this gift to the eternal profit of those who were yet to learn about Christ as he preached the gospel to them. But in the church, when Paul was in the church, where most folks speak the same language, the use of that gift had to be accompanied by interpretation in order for the church to be edified. Now Paul here has given himself as an example. He's, he's saying that this is what I do with this gift because he wants the Corinthians to imitate him. He's giving himself and his example as an example of what it looks like to do what he commanded in verse 12. What did he command there? Seek to abound for the edification of the church. If anyone could have exalted himself in the church and won fanboys to himself, it would have been Paul with his incredible giftedness. He had a superior intellect. And as an apostle, he had the authority to perform signs and wonders. He could have highly exalted himself, but he didn't do that. That wasn't his goal. He directed all of his energies into being a source of edification, exhortation, and consolation for the people of God. That's what he was intent on doing. And isn't that what love looks like? Love does not seek its own. Isn't that what Jesus looks like? In John chapter 13, which we read for our call to worship, On the day before Jesus would give his life as a sacrifice for his people, for anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. This is what Jesus did. This is what the creator of the universe did. This is what the Son of God did. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Don't miss verse 3. What did Jesus know? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. What did Jesus know? Jesus knew that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he knew that these disciples sitting around him, griping about which one of them would be first in the kingdom, he knew that those disciples were his slaves and that he was going to send them out on a mission of proclaiming himself as the Savior. And yet, what did Jesus do? Even knowing that, what did he do? He got up from supper. He laid aside his garments, apparently because nobody washed his feet. So he stooped to do the work himself. He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then the next day, he would go to the cross where he would love them to the end. He would pay their sin debt by dying on the cross in their place. And then on the third day, he would rise from the dead and appear to them as the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is. And if Jesus did that for us, if the King of kings would humble himself to do that for us, if he would direct all of his powers and his energies toward accomplishing our salvation, then how can you and I, who are his slaves, fail to do that for one another? We should be ashamed that we're so prone to exalt self in Christ's church. If our king was not selfish, how wicked is it for us, his slaves, to be selfish and to refuse to direct all of our giftedness and our energies toward building up one another. You and I must seek to abound for the edification, not of self, but of the church. Let's pray.